when you come to the scriptures and particularly throughout the Old Testament, one of the responsibilities of faithful men of God was to warn people about sin and its consequences. And uh, one of those faithful men was Ezekiel. And uh, he ministered to the people at a time when they were in captivity. And he reminded them of the sin that had brought them into that situation and warned them so that they would not repeat those things. And one of the many things that had caused God to bring judgment on the people was that they'd accused God of being unfair. They called into question his justice, his perfection, his character. And in response, Ezekiel says this. He says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? And speaking on behalf of the Lord as God's mouthpiece, he reaffirms the justice of the Lord and the fairness of the Lord is perfect dealings. And if we have a problem with him and think he's not fair, it's because our ways are twisted, not his. And it's not unusual for people to accuse God of being unfair. But the response comes in the Bible throughout the New Testament too that God is no respecter of persons. There's no partiality with the Lord. Think of Colossians 3, same principle, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. God judges fairly. Regardless of individual personalities, God is always just. And that is really important to remember as we come to this parable this morning. And so this parable of the vineyard, and really as we read together, this passage starts with the last verse of Matthew 19, where Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, hopefully many of you will have noticed that this is also stated again at the end of the parable. In verse 16 of chapter 20, the last will be first, and the first last. And so the parable is the illustration of this truth. When it comes to the blessings of knowing Christ, salvation in Christ, all who are granted to call on the Lord receive the same salvation. It doesn't matter about our background. It doesn't matter about the circumstances of our coming to Christ. It is all of grace, all of the Lord's mercy. And so we'll look at the parable and then we'll bring some applications and lessons. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And so the Lord Jesus uses this earthly illustration, as he does in these parables, to teach the spiritual lessons about his kingdom. And so we have what is a, a very familiar scene at that time. There's a landowner. He's got a large estate. It includes a vineyard, and he needs to get the harvest in. Now, Israel is divided into plains and mountains, and the plains would be full of grain fields, but the slopes of the mountains were terraced for the planting of vineyards. And so planting would happen in spring. The vines would be pruned and arranged and tended through summer, and then towards the end of September, it would be time to harvest the grapes. And it had to be done quickly because the rain season would come and that could be a disaster. And so the harvest had to be gathered in. 
So the landowner goes to recruit day workers early. That would be before 6 a.m. to do this work. Now, in the marketplace of the town, there would be a meeting point where day laborers would gather to wait for those who might come and hire them. And these workers, these day workers, were the lowest in the employment structure. They had no guarantee of work beyond the moment, and so they were desperate for whatever they could get. Now, to put it into context, soldiers and those regularly employed would usually get a denarius a day. But day laborers, they had no rate, and they couldn't negotiate either because if they didn't work, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't be able to provide for their families. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the Lord makes sure that these types of workers are paid on the day for their work. Deuteronomy 24, each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. And so these day laborers came, they would do the day's work and expect payment. Uh, look at verse 2, it says, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the first group of workers, they agree the terms, it is a very fair wage, it's more than they'd usually receive, they go off to work. But then in the parable, verses 3 to 7, we see this, the landowner goes back, and he goes back at around 9 a.m., which would have been the third hour of the working day, and he hires more of those who were idle. Now, I just need to make it clear in your mind, that doesn't mean that they're lazy. It means that they're unemployed and waiting for work. So they're there. They'd not been hired earlier in the day, but now they get the opportunity. And the landowner is an honorable man. He assures them that he will pay what is right. They respect his word. They go on those terms. They trust him. And he does the same. He goes again at noon, then at 3 p.m., even at 5 p.m. when there was only one hour of labor left. Every three hours he goes to gather more into his employment. Each time he finds those needing work, those desperately hoping for that need to be met, and he hires them with the assurance that he will pay right left. Now, the end of the working day comes, evening arrives. 12-hour days, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and the landowner gives instruction to his steward. Look at verse 8. Call the laborers, give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. Notice that the Lord Jesus includes that proverb at the beginning and the end in the middle of the parable to make the point. So the ones who came to work last will be paid first. The ones who have been hired first will be paid last. And so the workers line up in order. And then verses 9 to 10 when those who came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. Now, you can imagine, can't you? You know, they line up. The ones who'd worked for 12 hours, you know, they see this going on, and they think, well, surely we're going to get a, a bigger payment. If those who work for an hour get one denarius, surely we're going to get more than that. But then it became clear that everyone was getting the same. Then in verses 11 to 12, when they had received it, these ones who had been there through the day, they complained against the landowner. And they said, these men, these last men, they've worked for only one hour. You've made them equal to us. We've borne the, the burden and the heat of the day. 
Now, you might read that and you might have sympathy with them. And you might agree, you might say, well, that's, that's not fair. But what had the landowner promised to give at the beginning? What did they agree to work for? You know, did they think at that time that a denarius was a good wage for a day's work? Yes, they did. It was more than they were expecting. And so they were happy with that rate. It wasn't about fairness. So what was the issue? The issue was that they resented the landowner's generosity to the other laborers who they saw as less deserving. They were jealous, they were resentful because they'd been working longer, even through the scorching heat, maybe even hotter than what we've known in recent days. And even though they got more than they would have anticipated at the beginning of the day, they're not happy. Verses 13 to 15, the landowner makes the point that he's paying what was agreed, there's no unfairness. And he says, friend, by the way, that doesn't really convey the strength of the rebuke says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I'm good? He says that they should take their wages fair and generous. He has the right as the landowner to do what he wishes with his own possession. He rebukes their jealousy, the evil eye looking over what others have. You see, instead of marveling at the generosity of the landowner, they couldn't see past themselves. Instead of saying, isn't it amazing that he's been so kind to those who have the same need as us but missed out on employment earlier in the day? Isn't it so generous that he has met their need not according to their effort? They didn't have generous hearts that were able to rejoice in the blessing that others received. They resented it. They complained. And then the Lord Jesus concludes, so the last will be first and the first last. They say, what does all that mean? What does it mean for us? What are the, the spiritual lessons? What does it teach us about the kingdom? Well, the landowner is God. The vineyard is the kingdom, the sphere of God's rule, the kingdom of grace. The laborers are those who are called to salvation. They're brought into the service of the landowner of the king of the law. The day of work is the life following salvation. The evening is eternity, the denarius, eternal life. And the whole point of the parable is this. It is to teach about the grace of God in salvation. That God owes us nothing. And whatever we receive is a gift flowing from his grace. And no matter how long you serve in the kingdom, no matter how hard or straightforward the circumstances, no matter how difficult the task, at the end all believers receive the incredible eternal life in Christ. We all inherit this incredible future with the Savior if we are believers, the same glories of heaven. And the danger is we might be tempted to think, well, that's not fair. Sadly, as one explains, amazing grace has become boring grace. Boring because we don't think of ourselves as sinners. And deep down, we think that God owes us something. The kingdom, heaven, eternity is not a merit system based on what we do. 
And the parable underlines that we don't earn our way in. It is given to us purely as a gift because God is a God of grace and it is amazing. You know, such an important lesson. Let me just add a little bit of further context. You know, in Matthew 19, you'll remember after the rich young ruler had refused to follow and uh, turned away because of the cost. Remember in verse 27, Peter had says this. He says, Lord, see, we've left all, we've followed you, therefore what shall we have? In other words, Lord, we've done what he wouldn't do, what do we get? What do we have? We've forsaken all, we've followed. And like the 6 a.m. workers, they've been serving in the heat of the day, they've been following, it had cost them greatly, and so Peter says, what do we get? Now, they loved the Lord Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah, but they still struggled to get past the idea of an earthly, political, rich kingdom. And so even amongst the disciples, there's still that desire for authority and for influence. And they struggled when the Lord teaches and taught about the cross. They struggled when he went to the cross and died upon the cross. They were so dismayed. It looked like the kingdom had fallen through, that all that they'd given up to follow had gone. But then he rose again, and, and they asked him in Acts 1, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom? Is this the time, Lord? Now do we get the glory? It's interesting, even after this parable in Matthew 20, the Lord is going to pull them aside again and tell them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, to the cross, that he rise again the third day, and they'll struggle to accept that. And almost immediately, the mother of James and John is going to come to Jesus and ask that he gives her the sons, her sons, the thrones beside him in the coming kingdom. And you've got this discussion taking place amongst the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Do you know, in verse 24, if you look a bit further down in Matthew 20, you know, when news gets back to the other 10 that James and John's mother has been to Jesus, oh, they're furious. They're not happy with that at all. They were mad with those brothers. Why? Not because their question was unspiritual, but because they got there before them. And it reminds us that they were still sinners, still learning, still raw. And God will continue to work in them to transform them by his grace. And the Lord Jesus is patient with them and teaches them and rebukes them and will show them that whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the Savior has got to deal with the tendency of the disciples to misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. And at times, he has to deal with their selfishness, their jealousy, their heart attitude. And so in this parable, he makes it clear again, salvation and eternal life is not something you earn. It is a gift that he gives according to his sovereign will. It's not about when you came. It's not about how long you have served. It's not about how fierce the heat. You don't earn eternal life. It is given. And God has mercy on whom he has mercy and in his own time, his own purpose, and he never gives less than he promised. In fact, he gives abundantly. And so this eternal life given by the master is a gift. All who are saved by grace, trust in Christ, they'll be there. 
whether the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the beggars, people who served for their whole life or the martyrs, those who were saved at the last moment just before being taken into eternity, it is all of grace, the great leaven. As one says, true faith in Christ, though it be but a day old, justifies a man before God as completely as the faith of him who has followed Christ for 50 years. Saved by grace alone, owing everything to Jesus Christ. All believers, equally washed in the blood, clothed in the righteousness, justified, accepted, found with Christ forever. Do you know, all believers will be in the Father's house. You know, Romans 8, 17 says, we are joint heirs with Christ, we will be glorified together. It's interesting that that is uh, written to the believers in Rome. The Jews, you see, they always used to give a double portion of inheritance to the older sons, whereas the Roman practice was to give equal inheritance. And that is what Paul brings in. He uses that language. You are joint heirs with Christ. We don't lose out with the Lord Jesus. In him, we receive the fullness. We see the great riches of union with him and fellowship with him, eternal life in the glory to come. Think of 1 Peter 5 verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That's promised to every believer. The crown which is righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory. Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Do you know the eternal reward is called by so many names in Scripture, being with Christ, beholding the face of God, Beholding the glory of Christ, being glorified with Christ, reigning with Christ. The inheritance with the saints in light, as shining as the stars, everlasting light, entering the joy of the Lord, eternal rest, fullness of joy, the prize of the high calling of God, treasure in heaven, an eternal weight of glory. Stunning things for every believer in all of grace. Just a, a side comment, there are indications in the New Testament that though the title of all believers is the same, not all will know the same degree of glory, but that's for another time. The point is this, we receive the same eternal life. It's wonderful. And so what do we learn from this? What are the closing applications? Well, we see very clearly from this parable that God is sovereign in salvation. It is God who initiates. It is God who intervenes. It is God who saves. It was the landowner who went out to hire the laborers. He was the one who brought them into his vineyard. He came to the marketplace to seek out those to serve in his kingdom. And so therefore, as it is God who saves, and it is God who seeks, God who brings into his kingdom, what right do we have to demand what we get? We are there only because of his grace. He has sought us. And friend, in your life, if he sought you early, we've had the privilege of knowing him and serving him for many years, that is of his grace and we should praise him for it. If he saved us later in life and we only have a brief time, praise the Lord that you're saved at all, use what you have for him. It's his prerogative. We're in no place to make demands. And so the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation is clear, but it always draws out those cries of injustice. That God isn't fair. 
You know, Paul deals with this in Romans 9. In verse 14, speaking of God's electing grace, he asks, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? You know, and how does Paul answer that? Does he say, well, you know, it is a bit tricky. You know, maybe there is a bit of unfairness, but, you know, generally God is good. But he doesn't say that. He says, certainly not. May it never be. He says, it is unthinkable to even suggest that there is a gap in the righteousness and justice of God. God is perfect. God is God. Salvation is his prerogative, and he reminds them of what God revealed of himself in the Old Testament. Verse 15 to 16 of Romans 9, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Friends, you know, we in the church here believe the Bible, the sole authority in all matters of faith, and we believe that it teaches those great truths of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, justification, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And we don't understand the gospel until we understand that we are saved by grace alone. Not by grace plus merit, not or faith plus works, or Christ's righteousness with some of our own thrown in. It is all of God's grace his sovereign grace. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that if God gives his saving grace to one person to be just, he has to do that for everybody. But if God is required to give his grace to anyone, it's not grace. And that's the point of the parable. The landowner says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? In other words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God is sovereign in salvation. And God sets the terms. That's the other thing that we learn. As salvation is of the Lord, God sets the terms. He tells the workers that they'd receive a denarius. Those are the terms on which they came. He set the price. They went in agreement. True followers of the Lord always come on his terms. We've seen that in recent weeks. We also see in this parable that God continues to call people into his kingdom. You know, throughout the day, the landowner brought people into his vineyard. And whilst it is still day, this gospel age, God calls men and women, boys and girls, into his kingdom. John 9 verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So redemption goes on until the judgment comes and the day of grace is over. God continues to call people into his kingdom. We pray that he call you if you're not a believer. And God saves those in desperate need. You know, the men, they gathered in great need. They were looking for provision. They didn't have any resources. They were poor. They weren't self-sufficient. They were meek. They were dependent on someone else to provide. And friends, it is those who know they cannot save themselves, those who know that they've got nothing, who need the provision of another, who are given to find that in Jesus Christ. They couldn't earn it. It was on the basis of what the landowner was prepared to give. And those called into the kingdom, they worked. You know, even those who came in the last hour, they still did what they could for the Savior. 
Some worked for a, a short time for the masters, some for longer, but all were about the master's business. We're not saved by our works, but we're also told in the Scriptures that faith without works is dead. And that's why we shouldn't put off being saved. We shouldn't put off serving the Savior. The best thing, dear friends, is to start early and work with all the might you have, not for reward, but because you love Jesus. We love him. And when we're finished, we still say, I am nevertheless an unprofitable servant. It's such people the Lord delights to honor. That's the challenge. Don't wait to trust Christ. Don't wait to serve God, serve him now. It is a joy and privilege to know and live for the Savior. And then, lastly, a true believer should be marked by humility. A sense of unworthiness is the only right attitude. There is no place for jealousy. There is no place for thinking, well, I should have more than that other believer over there. God owes us nothing except his wrath as a punishment for our sin and rebellion. If we have received any blessing, it's because he has graciously given it. It is not because we have earned it. There is no place for pride. Sometimes, if we're honest, we can be a bit like the older brother as Christians in the parable of the prodigal. You remember the parable of the prodigal, the lost brother, well, eventually the lost brother comes back and there's great rejoicing. What's the older brother doing? Well, he's complaining. Why is he complaining? You see, he'd not run away. He'd stayed. He didn't get what his brother got. And in his eyes, his brother didn't deserve what he got. And sometimes we can be in danger of saying, well, well, I've been faithful. I've stayed when, when others have gone after other things. I've carried on doing what is right. I surely deserve more than them. Well, that's the older brother mentality. And it's far away from the grace and humility that we should display as those who've been blessed immeasurably. You know, one preacher a number of years ago, he'd been uh, around in Australia teaching about the power of prayer in a series of special meetings. And just before one of the meetings, a note was passed to him just before he was about to preach. And the note said this, Dear sir, I am in great confusion. I've been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. He said, I've been a member of a Presbyterian church for 30 years, and I've been consistent throughout all that time. I've been the superintendent of the Sunday school for 25 years. I've been an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer. Can you tell me why? Well, the preacher read the note, and in the meeting, he addressed it. And he said that he couldn't answer easily, but this is what he said. This man thinks that because he's been a faithful church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, an elder for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we desire God to answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. At the close of the meeting, the man who wrote the note came convicted and in tears. And he said that the preacher had exposed his heart. 
You see, that principle, even though there is applied to prayer, it applies to other areas too. It applies to anything that we may do for God, anything that we may expect from him. And the Lord Jesus says we've got to stop thinking of our service in terms of debt or obligation. Instead, we have to serve humbly in the spirit of a son who serves because he loves his father rather than the spirit of a hireling who serves only to get his wages. And the question is, do we love Jesus like that? Do we serve like that? Do you know, when I was thinking over these things, challenged my own heart. At the end, I just moved to praise the Lord and to thank him, to rejoice in sovereign grace, that God should be so gracious to a sinner like me, to give me such a glorious salvation and inheritance that I deserve nothing from him, and yet he has given me everything. And the question is, do you know that gratitude in your own heart? Or are you grumbling and murmuring because you feel you're not getting what you deserve from God, that he's not being fair to you? You see, it's all of grace. Grace saves, grace keeps, grace will bring us home Think of Ephesians 2, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, down in that marketplace with no resources and no hope, and yet he comes. And he comes to us and he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Friend, we need to be reminded of that. And if grace is pouring to you, then you need to search your own heart and pray that God would make it amazing to you. For some of you this morning, you're not in the kingdom. And I pray that you wouldn't continue to stand outside the place of blessing, never to know his grace or the blessings of the glory to come. This parable in no way advocates that it is safe for any to put off trusting the Savior until sometime later in their lives. That's very dangerous. Few are saved on their deathbeds. As one says, one thief on the cross was saved that none should despair, but only one that none should presume. A false confidence in those words, the 11th hour has ruined countless souls. And you need to think this morning whether you're still standing in the marketplace and it's late in the day and yet here you have been granted another opportunity to hear the call of the Lord to come, to turn from your sin and to trust in the Savior. And so the question is, will you come on his terms? Will you repent of your sin, trust Christ, cast yourself upon him? Will you know the eternal life that he gives? Here is that opportunity for you. And may it be the amazing grace that has touched so many of us would touch and grip you as well. Because in Christ, we have this wonderful hope, this eternal life. And you know, once it is given, it can be never taken away. And we have a certain hope. All praise be to his name. Amen. Amen.